A sweeping and audacious illegal payment scheme. So proclaimed Carrie Dunn, general counsel to Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus Vance Jr., as he presented charges on Thursday accusing the Trump Organization and its chief financial officer, Alan Weisselberg, of engaging in a 15-year criminal scheme to evade taxes on up to $1.7 million in perks paid to Weisselberg and members of his family. The DA's indictment charges that Weisselberg failed to pay taxes on leased Mercedes-Benz's bonuses, a rent-free apartment. But after all the build-up and hype about Vance's investigation, after he finally gets Trump's tax returns and digs into his finances, the charges seem to many a letdown. No charges against Trump himself or any members of his family. No accusations of insurance fraud, bank fraud, illegal foreign money, or any of the other alleged crimes that Vance was reportedly investigating. How serious a blow are these new charges to the former president? We'll discuss with former federal prosecutor Michael Zeldin, and then we'll take stock of the Supreme Court and the final decisions of this year's term with Jess Braven of the Wall Street Journal and Jackie Combs, author of Dissent, a new book about Justice Brett Kavanaugh, on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. Well, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. So I have to say, I was underwhelmed by uh, the Cyrus Vance indictment, mainly because if you looked at all the sort of hyped up coverage over the last few months about how Vance's investigation was going to finally be the one that brings Donald Trump down, the walls were closing in, he was in serious criminal trouble. And then we get the indictment, and they don't have the cooperation of Alan Weisselberg, the chief financial officer, which a lot of us thought was pretty essential to bring a complex criminal indictment against a financial organization, a a company like the Trump Organization. They don't have that. No accusations of wrongdoing by Trump himself. Nothing in there that cites emails or testimony they've got that are particularly damning. While the charges do seem to be serious in terms of the tax issue, uh, it's a lot less than a lot of people were led to believe we were going to see. You know, I think it's not just the hyped reporting, Mike. I think it's also years and years of investigative reporting about the Trump organization, about Donald Trump's taxes, about all sorts of alleged shady activity and, you know, questionable practices, a huge Russia investigation, you know, just so much out there, so much smoke that I think uh, there are a lot of people who are expecting that after, you know, years and years of investigation by state prosecutors and, and, and the district attorney's office in New York with subpoena power and a grand jury in, in place, that there would be some fire. And look, this investigation isn't over. I think Morgan, uh, Morgan Thau was going to say. <laughs> you're, you're living in the past, <laughs> I'm, I'm dating myself living, here. Yeah, right. Uh, you know, I think uh, Cyrus Vance said that the work goes on and clearly... They are trying to flip Weisselberg, and the difficult thing with Donald Trump is you, you mentioned that there were no emails. Well, that's because he doesn't write any emails, and he doesn't write any texts. 
Right. Uh, and the only way you're going to make a case against Donald Trump is with witness testimony. And Alan Weisselberg is the guy who knows everything because he's been at his side for decades and decades. So underwhelming so far, but it's not over. We're going to have to see where this goes. Any quick takes, Victoria? I was just going to echo something that Danny said, which is, is that everyone knew from the beginning, and Michael Zeldin, who we've got on, probably knows better than anyone, that these sort of cases are always pretty difficult to prove. And that when you've got a key target, Donald Trump, a man who doesn't put anything in writing, it's even harder to prove. And I think, you know, Michael, maybe we can ask you a quick question. Is this the first step in getting Weisselberg to flip? Or it's probably the third or fourth step in the efforts by Vance to get Weisselberg to flip and testify against Trump? My view is that this is probably the first phase of a multi-phased indictment series of um, events, that this is not the, the end. And whether or not this is calculated solely to get Weisselberg to flip or just to punish him for bad behavior, we don't know. But it seems to me they've invested so much time in this that if it was the end of the line with this indictment, I'd be surprised. So here's the thing on that point, Michael. Look, Cyrus Vance is leaving office. This was his grand big case, the one he'd been working on since 2018. So we're three years into this investigation. One would think he would want to put his you know, strongest stuff out there before he departs, right? Uh, you know, this yeah. was his chance to do so. And... He didn't let, do it. Let, let Victoria talk. Tish James isn't isn't leaving, and she's you know she's the attorney general for New York. Yeah, no, I understand, but I'm just saying this was Vance's legacy. All the stories say that this is likely to be the enduring legacy of Cyrus Vance as the Manhattan DA, and so just psychologically, you would think he would have done everything he could to put his strongest evidence out in this indictment. Yes, in part, but also we have to remember the timeline of the acquisition of evidence, which is they have just pretty recently gotten hold of the tax documents from Trump, and it's going to take a long, long time to go through those. And I think he'd rather his legacy be that he put in motion a case that ultimately led to conviction than he act precipitously in a way that led to an acquittal. So I hear you, but I think that laying the groundwork for something that results in a conviction when the evidence is sufficiently analyzed to bring forth a convictable indictment, I think makes more sense to me. Let's just step back for, for a moment, because I, I want to ask you, Zeldin, about these specific charges. Weisselberg has been charged with, I think it's grand larceny. Uh, which sounds like a big deal, but for evading taxes, not paying taxes on these fringe benefits that he was getting from the company for, as Mike said in the introduction, you know, leasing Mercedes-Benz, uh, apartments, private school tuition, that sort of thing. And, you know, to the tune of, I think- $1.7 million in total, so- it, $1.7 million at, total. At his tax bracket, that's half of that goes to taxes. Yeah, it was about nine, maybe $900,000 or something in taxes that he, that he didn't pay. So uh, first question for you, uh, Michael, is, you know, there was a lot of chatter before the indictment that, well, you know, th these are n not cases that are actually really brought very often, if, if at all. You know, maybe they'll end in a civil settlement or, you know, plead out to something pretty minor. 
Is that true, or are these cases brought uh, more often than people realize, but they just don't get scrutiny because they don't involve you know, the company and employees of the former presidents of the United States? Well, I think it's a little of both. In respect of corporations, most corporations, when accused of or going to face indictment for criminal wrongdoing, almost always cooperate. The, the, the sentencing guidelines and the penalties for cooperation for corporations that don't cooperate are so much harsher than for cooperating companies that all these companies almost always cooperate. They'll throw individuals under the bus, but the corporations themselves always cooperate. In this case, the prosecutors allege that at, quote, the highest levels the company decided not to accept responsibility and cooperate, which is what companies do if they want to be viewed as good corporate citizens. So in respect of the corporation, it's unusual that to have as a non-cooperating entity. In respect of individuals, these types of cases, tax evasion, because that's what this is. This is, you can say it's a fringe benefit case, but in its essence, it's a tax evasion scheme. There are false book record keeping entries. There are non-payment of W-2 income recorded as 1099 income so that the person can set up a Keogh plan that defers taxes. This was a sophisticated tax evasion scheme. And if you want to look for precedent, go look at Leona Helmsley, who did essentially the same thing and got four and a half years in prison for it. So, Michael, I think the answer to the question, or Dan, to the answer to the question is they're common and they're not common. They're not common for companies to fight it. They are common for individuals to be charged with tax evasion. You know, the perspective I'm looking at it is, you know, the public really doesn't give a shit about Alan Weisselberg. Um, he's not a name that anybody knows. It's This was all a way is, can you flip him to get to Donald Trump? And you know, uh, Kleiman and I have covered, you know, Justice Department prosecutions, criminal uh, investigations for years. And generally, the way you get somebody to flip is to confront them with the prospect of spending serious time in prison. I mean, you know, lifetimes or decades in prison, or if it's a young Wall Street guy with a family, you know, being away from his family for 10, 20 years. I cannot tell whether Alan Weisselberg faces a real prospect of, even if convicted after a trial, which is likely to drag on for a while before we get to that, I can't tell that he's facing any real serious time in prison. I know that there's like a five to 15 years under New York state law for the grand larceny charge, but nothing mandatory. And, you know, judges will tend to look at precedents for similar kinds of cases. You know, maybe Helmsley, uh, you know, might fit, but uh, it, it just strikes me as not the kind of case that, you know, Alan Weisselberg is going to, um, you know, cower in fear and say, okay, I'm going to give up everything I got. Well, you know, it's true that New York doesn't have sentencing guidelines and there are no mandatory minimums for the charges that he faces. But prosecutors who I've spoken to in New York who look at these cases say, if the judge believes that Weisselberg engaged in the scheme that he's alleged to have engaged in a multi-year effort with sophisticated duplicity, that he will spend years in jail, that his sentence will be years in jail. And so when you're 73 years old, 
years in jail is a serious well, well, what's the penalty. basis for that years in jail? Wait, if there's no mandatory minimums, and there's no guidelines. How do we conclude that he's uh, realistically facing years in prison? It's just pattern and practice of judges facing similar defendants facing similar charges in New York state system. That's what prosecutors in New York tell me that that's the likely result, Michael. No guarantee. Don't forget, in addition to the potential jail time, there's also the prospect of financial ruin to Weisselberg as a result of this, both in terms of like the amount of money that he's going to have to pay to defend himself and the penalties that he might incur, you know, from the failure to pay all of the taxes. So that's a double whammy that might have an impact on him. But but who knows? I want to ask because Weisselberg isn't the only defendant in this indictment. And what are the, you know, the long-term implications for the Trump organization from this indictment? Standing alone, it probably is not a good signal to people who might be contemplating giving the Trump organization loans going forward. But what does it mean for the Trump organization in terms of its kind of current business practices? I don't think it'll have an impact in terms of Will their loans be called in, their existing loans be called in if, if they're convicted of, of this tax manipulation? But it's possible. But, you know, the Trump Organization has had a long history of, you know, bad business practices we saw in Trump University and the foundation and, and other things. And so people, you know, I think deal with the Trump Organization at, at arm's length, you know, with eyes wide open, you go in knowing what the potential is in terms of not being paid and and being, you know, hung out to dry if if things go south. This will be further evidence for people who are looking for evidence that this is an organization not to do business with. Plus, I think it's additionally stigmatizing of the brand of Trump. I think that. Trump, you know, has made his living lately, the last you know decade or so, selling his name. He doesn't build anything anymore. He just brands property and gets fees for that that branding, like the Trump Hotel here in 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 Washington or the golf courses. And so, if the brand is tarnished, then I think that has collateral financial consequences for the organization. My God, hasn't the brand <laughs> been tarnished say, the last four already years. to the max? I mean, you know, from January 6th to the stop to the steal to the botching of the COVID-19 to everything else. It's a different know. kind of branding. One is the branding as a successful businessman. Uh, yeah, and the other is. But about as it. Michael correctly pointed out, Trump University was a was a was yeah. a scam for which you know he had to fork over millions of dollars in a settlement to the people who he he screwed there. The Trump charity was shut down. It was a scam. I, I mean, I think the evidence is abundant of Donald Trump's shady business practices. I'm not defending the guy for a second uh, in all this. I'm just trying to sort of make sense of how much, you know, legal trouble he's in and also how much political trouble he's in. Because at the end of the day, in our polarized political world, I mean, Cyrus Vance is an elected Democrat. You know, Trump will paint this as one more example of a partisan Democrats who don't like his politics going after him in every way they can. And to his base, that's going to resonate. Right. But Michael, the thing that differentiates 
this case from Trump University and the charity, et cetera, is that if there is a criminal conviction, and we're talking about business relations with the Trump organization, if this is a criminally convicted organization, I think it's much easier for lenders and insurance companies and others to say, you know what, that's a bridge too far for us. We just can't do business with you. So I think that there's a differentiator in a conviction versus, you know, sort of bad practices that never led to a conviction, but rather just led to a, a civil settlement and a, a wind down of the university and the foundation. I got another quick question for you. If you read the indictment, you know, Weisselberg is not just cheating New York State and New York City on his taxes. He's also cheating the feds. Well, and mostly, so, I mean, the, the, right, the majority yeah. of tax dollars here was, I think, federal. Yeah, to the IRS. So are there grounds for the Garland Justice Department to now charge Donald Trump? And if so, why haven't we even seen a hint that they're investigating this? So the Southern District of New York has you know, collateral jurisdiction, concurrent jurisdiction o- o- over this. I don't believe that they have gotten the tax returns. I don't think they have the documentation that they might need to bring this case, but you know, perhaps there's a mechanism now by which information can be shared and they will take a look at it as a possible federal tax evasion scheme too. So, you know, the door is open for them to still look at this. But I think Michael, part of the problem is that they haven't had the same evidence that Vance has had. Okay, but Michael, if you were say head of the tax division in the justice in the uh, Garland Justice Department or uh, U.S. attorney in the Southern District, and you were advising Attorney General Garland on whether to bring a case here, what would you tell him? And and isn't there some, some duty here for the federal government to kind of vindicate its interests when so much of this money is uh, federal tax dollars? Yes, I think so. And if they ask me, do I think this is a prosecutable a case? I would say yes, that the, the indictment here clearly sets forth a prima facie case of tax fraud. It had um, all of the badges of fraud, concealment, uh, phony records, a consciousness of tax law obligations so that it's not accidental. And yes, so if you're asking me as the head of the tax division or uh, the head of the criminal tax enforcement division in the Southern District of New York, would I bring this case? I would bring this case. Well, the uh, of course, it becomes a little bit more politically problematic for the Biden-Garland Justice Department to go after Donald Trump as opposed to Cyrus Vance. That does, that's not a reason not to do it. But Since I'm Donald saying, Trump may be Joe Biden's rival for re-election right, right. in there, 2004. There, there uh, is that. We've had all these years of controversy about the politicization of the Justice Department and it being weaponized for political purposes by the Barr Justice Department. I think Merrick Garland is going to be very careful and cautious about, you know, bringing going after Trump's organization. He'll probably take the recommendations of the career right. prosecutors in the Justice Department and say that. You know, but so. also, I mean, isn't it more likely that the IRS will feel compelled to do something in terms of at least a civil penalty or take some action civilly, if not criminally, given the charges that Vance has laid out? 
Absolutely. And we don't know that they have a, haven't already started this investigation. IRS investigations take a very long time. Well, they were supposedly auditing Trump's tax returns for 15 years. You would have thought they might have come across this because they had access to the taxes, right? Yes, absolutely. So in answer to your question, why hasn't it been done already? I don't know. But will there be pressure on the IRS? not political pressure, but internal standards, practices, procedures, pressure for them to bring civil fines? I think absolutely. I think that's okay. what one should well, expect. Well, Michael, you have uh, added to the pressure that they're under by making these comments on skullduggery. So um, uh, we will take due note of what you had to say, as should the uh, bosses at the IRS. Right. The thing of this, you opened this segment by saying that you know you were a little bit disappointed. There's that... Underwhelmed. Underwhelmed. I'll butcher the word, but isn't, it, is, isn't there a word schadenfreude? Schadenfreude, I think. Yeah, is so, yeah. I, don't, I thought, I didn't know how to do it, which is um, enjoyment obtained by the troubles of others. So I think, yep. you know, there's sort of schadenfreude... Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, let down or something that the, the <laughs> amount of troubles didn't equal the amount of pleasure you wanted to get. <laughs> okay. On that note, uh, Michael, I want to thank you for joining us again on Skullduggery. And um, when the IRS starts to take some action, um, we will have you back and you can uh, gloat and say you predicted it all. <laughs> <laughs> My pleasure. Thanks, everybody. Okay. Right. Thanks a lot. And now on another front, the Supreme Court has ended its term with two big decisions uh, this week, one on voting rights, one on disclosing donors to charities, a California law. And, you know, we want to take stock of what to make of this year's Supreme Court term uh, with its new 6-3 conservative majority. And also, but just to start out, There was a lot of anticipation that Justice Breyer, one of the three liberals still on the court, might announce a resignation, or certainly there were a lot of people who were hoping that. He has not done so. Sometimes justices do it when the term ends. So let's get our take from Supreme Court watchers Jess Braven of the Wall Street Journal and Jackie Combs, author of the new book, Dissent. Jess and Jackie, welcome to Skullduggery. And Jess, let's start out with you. What should we make of this year's Supreme Court term? Well, I think that uh, we saw this year that uh, the uh, the conservatives are uh, are calling the tune. They are some notes uh, of conciliation. There were some decisions that did not go as far uh, in moving the law as, as uh, some parts of the court's uh, right wing wanted, particularly when it came to uh, questions of, of, of gay rights. But the pace is being determined by the conservative majority, uh, particularly by the Chief Justice and the two newest members, Justice uh, Kavanaugh and Justice Barrett. Those three who really comprise the center of what uh, the Supreme Court is now at times made accommodation with the liberal wing, which was sort of uh, managing its defeat, if you will. They were compromising, giving up some things that they might otherwise have uh, stood up for in order to have a seat at the table in developing new doctrines that are more conservative than the old ones. But other cases, as you said, uh, Mike, uh, we had 
two very big conservative ideological wins on the last day of the court, uh, particularly uh, regarding uh, uh, reigning in the Voting Rights Act. And we had earlier ones this, uh, this year as well, such as uh, a very big case striking down uh, California farm worker organizing law that uh, Cesar Chavez had championed in the 70s. One quick follow-up to this, uh, you know, given the 6-3 makeup of the court, which we knew going in, are there any decisions that particularly surprised you? This term? Yes, I think so. And one of the ones, uh, it was one of the big ones, it's known as uh, Fulton versus Philadelphia. This was a case involving Catholic Social Services, uh, which did foster care services on a city contract in Philadelphia. They did not want to serve same-sex couples. This was a case that the court had an opportunity to dramatically expand the rights of religious exceptions to general laws to really change course and give religion a much wider berth uh, than it has had before. They chose not to uh, swing for the fences. This was one of those cases where the chief justice and the two new conservative justices joined with the liberal minority to uh, make some steps in that direction, but not go as far as the more conservative members really wanted, being Justice Thomas and uh, Alito and Gorsuch. Let me just bring uh, Jackie into this, because Jackie, your book, Dissent, is about this... uh, decades-long project to move the Supreme Court to the right. And you really focus on Brett Kavanaugh as the sort of personification of that move and that project. Is there anything about his tenure so far in the Supreme Court, uh, now that this term has ended, uh, that surprises you? Uh, You know, there Adam Liptak in the, in the uh, New York Times called him the ideological center of the court. I think he voted with the majority more than any other justice, uh, very closely followed by uh, Chief Justice Roberts. So what's your assessment of uh, his tenure so far? And as I asked, anything surprising? I haven't been too surprised by Brett Kavanaugh. And for, for this reason, he has, as you say, he's sort of formed the center behind Chief Justice Roberts. And on some cases in this term with Amy Coney Barrett, I think his being, his being in the center is only a reflection of how far right the court's balance has moved. I mean, in no sort of normal political world would Brett Kavanaugh be considered a centrist, and certainly Amy Coney Barrett. But the well, first on Kavanaugh, I think what you see in his decisions there there's a very political act going on that the just the chief justice is leaving leading the, and Kavanaugh is often part of it. And it reflects that Kavanaugh is at bottom a sort of political animal. His background has all been uh, as an adult in adult uh, conservative legal movement, partisan politics, whether it was the star uh, investigation of Bill Clinton or in the Bush White House before he was on the Court of Appeals. He was an appellate court judge for many years. That's not a partisan uh, position by definition. Although there was a number of uh, analyses, including one that, I, that sticks out to me, where S- Steve Perlstein of the Washington Post once called him a uh, politician in black robes because of the... That, that's what everybody who's on the other side of a position <laughs> says about the other guy so or other woman. So I, I, I don't put much stock in that. But um, yeah, I mean, he had, and also just to call him a fringe or extreme character doesn't really match the totality of his record. This is a central, he was in the center of Republican Party jurisprudence. He was a Bush guy. Um, He was, you know, uh, he was the kind of nominee that any Republican president 
would likely have picked. Well, any recent Republican president would likely have picked in in these past couple decades. I'd say as late as Reagan's time and George H.W. Bush um, before he turned to Clarence Thomas. Anyway, they picked from a very different breed of of lawyer to put on the court more, you know, chamber of commerce or oriented types and, and law and order. But let me just, I don't disagree with you and Kevin, and we don't disagree. I think he is very political in the sense that he wants the court and he agrees with Roberts that these decisions should be tailored in a way that don't um, maybe step too far away from popular opinion. And you see this repeatedly in, Ke- in Kavanaugh's either in his concurrences or dissents that he's trying to like put a soft sheen on a uh, very conservative stance and, and to split the baby. And so that was happened throughout the court's term this time. But I think it's, it's interesting and I think it's appropriate that the courts ended its term with yesterday's two six to three decisions that were neatly six, the six conservatives versus the three liberals on political cases, one making it harder to enforce the Voting Rights Act in case of discrimination and the other to disclose donors that are really on these political committees, not charity committees. That, that shows you the limits of their uh, willingness to be centrist and to be, be seen as nonpartisan. If you have a case that's about politics, money, or elections, the six conservatives are going to be voting together almost all of the time. And I think that's also true of religious liberties cases now, as we've seen when it's a question of the balance between religious liberties and LGBTQ rights, it has a higher, they're putting it on a higher, um, religious liberties on a, on a higher level. And um, where, where do you guys think the uh, Affordable Care Act case fits into this analysis? A reminder that this court did right. reject the final attempt by Republicans to get rid of the Affordable Care Act, and the conservative majority upheld it. And nothing yeah. more politicized than health care over the past right. Uh, right. decade. Well, and, and that, I think, is one where the court led by Roberts was uh, intent on not going too far against public opinion. And the longer the, many, the longer number of years that the ACA was in place, the more people you were going to be throwing off insurance plans by voting against it. So each each of the three decisions was decided by a wider margin until this most recent one was seven to two with only um, I think uh, Gorsuch and uh, Alito voting against it. And, and it was a, on a narrow, narrow grounds. And um, but the net result is in each, each one was sort of narrowly tailored to, to salvage it. But I, I, to, to just uh, what he says, I just think it's at bottom a ACA salvaging the ABA, ACA was overall led by Roberts, an attempt to not get too far away from public opinion. Well, I think, you know, with, with the with the ACA case, and you also have to look at what the legal issue was in this case. And it, this was uh, many lawyers felt almost preposterous legal theory uh, that was used by the attorney general of Texas to try to uh, get the entire act thrown out. Basically a technicality that that the penalty for failing to carry insurance was set at zero by the Congress uh, in, the, in, a, in a, the 2017 tax act. It wasn't eliminated, but it was set at the number zero. Therefore, it was no longer producing revenue. Therefore, it was no longer an exercise of congressional tax authority. Therefore, the entire law is unconstitutional. If Congress were to come in and then set the penalty at one cent, poof, it would become constitutional again because it would generate revenue for the United States and therefore be an exercise of the taxing power. This was such a 
extraordinary argument that, you know, Justice Department lawyers would chuckle about it at parties. I mean, it was not, it just was not really, it was too far even for this court to go, no matter how much they disliked the Affordable Care Act, and that you have Clarence Thomas joining uh, Sonia Sotomayor in the majority here shows you uh, how uh, extreme a theory it was and how this court simply was not going to going to stomach it. I mean, Thomas wrote in his concurring opinion that, you know, he thought the prior decisions where he was in the dissent voting to overturn the Affordable Care Act, you know, he still agrees with those. But on this legal theory, on this case, he has to go with the majority because there's nothing there. And so it's not just and, it, you know, like it's not like a vote in Congress to overturn the Affordable Care Act. They failed the third time. There's a legal theory that goes along with it. And the legal theory was so weak and so extreme that uh, there just was was barely it barely got a toehold on this very conservative. So wait, let, let me just uh, let me just jump in and ask the, the, the biggest change in this year's Supreme Court was uh, the a new justice on the bench, Amy Coney Barrett. She didn't end up writing a lot of decisions. The decisions worked on really kind of necessarily the highest profile issues with maybe one possible minor exception. Justin Jackie, what what has Amy Coney Barrett done on the court? What, is, what have we learned about the future of the court from her presence? Well, uh, I'll start Victoria. Well, we certainly learned that she's no Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, <laughs> on, on uh, issues that, uh, that, that really mattered. She was certainly uh, voting uh, the opposite way than her predecessor would have done. But despite the way, you know, despite the, 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 the celebrations that, that President Trump bathed her in when he nominated her at, at, a, at a famous super spreader event at, at, at the White House, she did not prove to be the, the savior for his political life that, that he may have hoped. I mean, uh, or not the radical that that Democrats portrayed her as during her confirmation. That's right. I mean, you know, as, as I said, lawyers always thought there was very little chance that this Affordable Care Act challenge would survive at the Supreme Court. And Democrats, uh, for reasons that must be <laughs> involved, you know, their own effort to to uh, whip up their their base, made her confirmation hearing uh, uh, in October all about the Affordable Care Act with big pictures of people who could lose health care. And <clears throat> it really was a, a misdirection. Now, it's not a misdirection in that she's a very conservative justice and, you know, and in other and other cases might have voted against the Affordable Care Act, but not this time. It seemed very unlikely. There's nothing to suggest this was why she got into the law, you know, to, to, to be an expert in technical application of the tax clause to strike down major social programs. So that's not what she is about and what what motivated her to, to get there. So Democrats definitely picked the wrong uh, boogeyman to try to scare people about Amy Coney Barrett, because that's not what she did. But she also was silent in all the election contests that came to the Supreme Court, didn't lift a finger to help President Trump, as far as we know. So uh, she must be a disappointment to him as well. Just to, to tie back to that and to Jess's comment that she wasn't, you know, the, the radical people um, had pictured her as. It's just there are she's de- definitely, as he said, made a been a completely different justice than the woman she replaced, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And there, I'd like to point out a couple areas there where she has made a critical difference. For one thing, in the next term, the court is going to be taking up a very important abortion case. And the fact that the court is even taking up that case, which is a state law in Mississippi that is looks unconstitutional to anybody with even a layman's knowledge of past Supreme Court precedents on abortion is a sign that, you know, she she provided the vote that made it possible to grant cert to take up that decision. And the others are these cases uh, where religious liberties 
are at stake on like in the, in the COVID cases where the states were and governors and local officials were imposing restrictions across the board as COVID cases were going up in their areas. And she, when Ruth Bader Ginsburg was there, the court was voting four, five to four to uphold the state deference to the states and localities to um, make their own decisions about public health. Once Amy Barrett was from the very first month she was on the court, she flipped those five to four decisions because to her, with the other conservatives, the other four conservatives, religious liberties of churches to be open or do what they want for the most part are more important than deferring to uh, local and state officials on public health matters. Well, look, Jackie, let me follow up on the abortion case because uh, this is the, the case coming out of Mississippi that would right. ban abortion after 15 weeks, very controversial. Obviously, as you suggest, a lot of people um, who are pro-choice are worried that this is going to be a vehicle to overturn uh, Roe. But you were talking before about Chief Justice Roberts's uh, jurisprudence and wanting to say, you know, being incrementalist, stay close to public opinion. You were suggesting that Kavanaugh may share that that view and that style uh, of, of judging. So what's your best guess at this point, or informed guess based on your reporting and your analysis, of what the court will do and whether um, just Chief Justice Roberts will be able, will want to cobble together a majority to perhaps roll back Roe, but, but not overturn it? Well, I think that's what they want to do, which is not to have a flat out overturning of Roe or the Casey case in 1993, I think it was. But by these cases, like in the Mississippi case, that's a question in the, in the upcoming term that starts in October, 15 week, you know, banning abortions um, after 15 weeks. The, the, this gets to the basic question that Roe dealt with about viability, that a woman had a constitutional right to decide she wanted an abortion up to the point that a fetus was viable. And for all the advances in medicine, it's nowhere near 15 weeks. And so if the court then decides that the states can pass those sorts of laws, you'll, you know, this is the, the, the net result is you're just going to continue to have another, the court green lighting these laws and restrictions that make abortion all but unavailable to most of the country. And we'll be right back where we were pre-Roe, where women like in my hometown of Toledo, Ohio, flew or drove overnight to New York City to get their abortions. And so that's what I think we'll end up with. I know Victoria will want to get to voting rights so we can argue about it. But before <laughs> we do, uh, before we do, we were talking before about surprises. So I want to sort of propose what for me was my biggest surprise. And that was Clarence Thomas and marijuana suggesting that it is now time for the federal government to uh, reassess whether it still makes any sense to uh, ban the use of marijuana when, I forget how many states, but it's a pretty substantial number at this point, including the largest state, California, have all legalized it, um, although I rarely agree with him. Uh, that makes Clarence Thomas my personal hero for this uh, term. Uh, I was going to say, it might, what Clarence Thomas did might be surprising, but the fact that you're bringing up, that Mike Isikoff is bringing up this case is yeah. not at all surprising. All right. Well, uh, Jess, um, what should we make of uh, Thomas's, um, what was it, in a concurrence he wrote that? Yes, uh, it was. It, it, you know, the, the thing, though, is that uh, Clarence Thomas uh, has 
has had this view for a long time. In 2005, there was a case called Raich versus Gonzalez, which dealt with uh, whether the, the Federal Controlled Substances Act would supersede California's then early step toward legalization, where uh, the Compassionate Use Act that allowed medical use of marijuana. And, you ha- and he dissented from the court's decision, which uh, upheld the federal primacy over the state law for similar reasons. He did not accept the, uh, the argument that uh, personal growing a few pot plants for your personal use if you're sick in California triggered federal authority through the Commerce Clause. So it's not completely new for, for Clarence Thomas. But this wasn't medical. He went beyond that in, in what he wrote this time. That's right. That's right. He did. And, uh, you know, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not uh, I'm not shocked by it. Uh, you know, it's, it's certainly consistent with, with what he said before. He, he's someone who rarely changes his views uh, on things. So there, there had not to be huge surprises. But if you want to go a little more broadly, uh, Mike, you know, he he aligned with the liberals more often than one would expect in this in this term. Uh, he did, for example, in a case involving class action case involving whether consumers could sue a a credit uh, rating company that falsely labeled them as terrorists. You know, he, you know, so there were some some moments where Clarence Thomas did not stick purely to the conservative script, but there were plenty more where he was exactly where he's always been. The other most interesting Clarence Thomas development over the course of the last year and a half is, is as the Supreme Court moved to kind of remote oral arguments, we heard more from Clarence Thomas in the last year and a half than we've heard from him during the his entire time on the bench, because all of a sudden the chief justice was calling on every other justice to ask a question. And silent Clarence Thomas suddenly became a very, from my perspective, very good questioner on the bench. There, he often asked very insightful, interesting questions uh, that really kind of pushed the lawyers uh, appearing before them. A- a- is it time to reevaluate Clarence Thomas, or is it just sort of this rare kind of thing that happened with COVID? Well, I think that, uh, you know, Justice Thomas got a bad rap because he was uh, almost always silent during oral arguments, which is the only time the public could really see the Supreme Court in action. But anyone who's, who's talked to him, uh, you know, which, which I have a few times, and, uh, you know, or seen him speak at, uh, you know, occasional public appearances knows that this guy, he knows the law, he's very smart, he has very strong views on it, and, and they're certainly not views that everyone agrees with. But when it comes to knowing the material and having incisive questions and thinking about it, he does that. I mean, this guy... I think was, you know, there, there are many reasons one could criticize him or any other Supreme Court justice, but the idea that uh, some suggested that he's not asking questions because he can't think of any or something like that is was totally unfounded and unfair to him. The question, I guess, now is if the court goes back to the courtroom and goes back to the, its normal way of argument, which is a sort of a free-for-all among the justices, will Clarence Thomas continue to be involved, or is it just the format where each justice asks questions in sequence in a teleconference that he found more uh, comfortable or more useful to him, and he'll go back to his his prior uh, uh, custom of, of of letting others do the talking. Okay, Mike, should we should we get into our yeah, argument absolutely. now? Is it, is it time to is it yeah. time to argue? Yeah, oh yeah, I'm, I'm loaded for bear. Go, go ahead, Victoria. <laughs> so Bronvich, that was uh, one yeah. of two two big blockbuster decisions that came down on the last day of 
the court, the Supreme Court in a 6-3 decision, uh, really clawed back the pretty much the last remaining effective tool coming out of the Voting Rights Act, which is Section 2 of the Act. If it was uh, maybe a five on the difficulty scale to bring a Section 2 case before, it's now probably an eight, where eight is more difficult to bring uh, a challenge to uh, laws under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. I think to a lot of Supreme Court observers, the Supreme Court's decision in Bronvich wasn't the biggest surprise. But just before before we uh, commence our argument, maybe it would be super helpful for our listeners to hear a kind of a summary of what the what the Bronvich decision essentially did. Sure. I mean, this case came from Arizona, and there was a challenge filed by the Democratic Party against two provisions of Arizona uh, election law. One said that if uh, you cast your ballot in the wrong precinct, in other words, your ballot is valid, you filled it out correctly, all that, but you just bring it to the wrong uh, polling station and hand it in there, it won't be counted, even for, say, statewide races where it doesn't matter uh, uh, where, which precinct you, you live in. So that was one provision, and the Democrats challenged that uh, under the Voting Rights Act, saying, for instance, that uh, uh, minority voters may be more likely to change their addresses or move, or might be that uh, polling places in their neighborhoods are moved more frequently, and it has a disparate effect on them, and it makes it harder for them to vote, reduces their opportunity to vote. The other provision involved what the you know, third-party collection of ballots. So there's absentee ballots, the voter doesn't go to the mailbox personally and, and or to the board of elections and turn in some other organization like, you know, whether it's, you know, some third party, the League of Women Voters or maybe a Democratic group or a Republican group collects the absentee ballots and delivers or or, fam- or family members or friends. Right. It's not just political groups. Right. No, family members can right. uh, family collect members the ballots and do but, it. But okay. what Caretakers and family members can. What they what they targeted in the Our Arizona outside, law was okay. campaign partisan campaign workers going around collecting multiple ballots. Right. That's what Arizona... So-called right. Harvard, uh, yeah. Harvard ballot, ballot harvesting. harvesting. Right. And, the, and, the, and the argument there was in particularly on Native American reservations in Arizona where people live very far away and there aren't a lot of mailboxes on the corner. Those kinds of ballot collection things, efforts were more important to them and they were affected. So the Democrats challenged that. Interestingly, the, the Obama administration did not uh, join that suit. They, had, they, were, they were not uh, attacking those regulations. A district court in Arizona found the regulations okay. The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals overturned them. Uh, Judge uh, Willie Fletcher on the Ninth Circuit wrote a very long opinion detailing the history of voting discrimination in Arizona and said these rules uh, uh, stem from those. Supreme Court overturned those, uh, that decision by Judge Fletcher and the Ninth Circuit and did uh, narrow the standards for uh, Section 2 enforcement going forward. And that casts a shadow on the lawsuit that Merrick Garland recently filed against the state of Georgia and the new voting rules that uh, the Republican legislature enacted after Democrats won the November election there. Just on that point, uh, Jess, before Isakoff and Victoria have their throwdown, um, <laughs> I was under the impression that you said cast a shadow on the on the Garland Justice Department's lawsuit. But in that case, they are alleging intentional discrimination. Isn't that a distinction under Section 2? I mean, isn't if they can prove that, isn't that a path toward victory? Yes, that is. That's right. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't kill that suit by any means. It just sort of makes it clear that the court is going to want to see a lot of proof. I mean, they're not going to mean, in other words, it makes it harder. My sense was that they that that they saw where where this was going and so that they really had to uh, push hard to to try to make that case. That's why they 
uh, alleged part of the reason why they would have alleged intentional discrimination here. Oh, you're totally right. I mean, they I mean, the, I mean, I mean, because look, if they lose what they want to get out of the loss is here, we showed all this intentional dis- discrimination and the Supreme Court wouldn't even let that go through. In other words, right, exactly. They wanna, you know, that's that's their consolation prize. They want to be able if they do lose, they say, how could it be clear? You know, African-American voting exploded uh, all these, you know, and the, the legislature didn't like the, what, the who they voted for. So it decided to make it harder for them. And we still can't win under the Voting Rights Act in a state that is, you know, uh, a poster child for racial discrimination, at least historically, if not if not in more recent decades. If, if I could just interject quickly on the direction of this Supreme Court is that when we had the first big case, John Roberts' opinion that struck down the uh, Shelby County versus Holder case in 2013 that ended Section 5 of the famous Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act that allowed for pre-clearance for the Justice Department had to clear these some of these state laws in states with a history of discrimination. But in that opinion, Roberts said at the time that people still had section two to rely on. So section five was what you would use before a law even took effect. And section two was after the law took effect, if you could show discrimination, you could challenge it. Now Roberts and his court have done away essentially with with section two or made it so hard as we've been discussing that it's going to be hard for people challenging these laws. That's that's what he calls incrementalism. Yeah. At its heart, it seems to me that what the Supreme Court is doing, although it's it's more complicated than this, but but a, a simple way of viewing it is that the Supreme Court essentially is saying, look, making it hard to vote is not a bad thing. You know, it should be hard to vote. Go ahead. You know, it's like it's not, you know, some burden. I, 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 think, I think the word that Alito uses in his opinion is inconvenience. And right. you know what? Going to the polls on Election Day can be inconvenient for some people. For others who uh, you know care about our democracy and think you have a cit- you, know, you have a civic right and obligation to participate, you go you you work through whatever inconvenience is there because you should vote because we should participate. Low interest voters, people who don't really aren't invested in the democratic process, you know, will be held off by some slight inconvenience. But when you combine, you can always go to the polls and vote on Election Day with in almost every state now, certainly in all these Republican past uh, uh, Republican legislators under the new restrictions, you can vote by mail. You can get mail in voting, no excuse mail in voting. You can vote early, 15 days of early voting. You put the totality of that together to suggest that it is too inconvenient for some people to go to vote vote and that that therefore deprives them of their democratic right to participate in our process just doesn't seem like a very strong argument to me. Uh, Yeah, but when those some people are people who have historically been disadvantaged, when those some people and the techniques that they use to vote have been specifically targeted to make it specifically more inconvenient for them, then I think we've got some like pretty serious questions about the future of our democracy. And when the justification for that some inconvenience on some people is ephemeral lies or completely baseless allegations of 
you know, fraud, then I think you've got serious concerns about the future of our democracy. And one of the things that happens in this case that came down in Bronvich is the Supreme Court once again, rather credulously accepts any argument that the state might make about why it needs to impose these new inconveniences. And the evidence shows that these inconveniences actually decrease the participation of core communities. Well, look, first of all, if you this read is our, the for, yeah, for, yeah. For, for our guests, this is an eternal argument okay. that Mike yeah. and I have. <laughs> right. All right. Like 1% of African-American voters voted in the wrong precinct and, you know, 0.5 of white voters. It's a pretty small number we're talking hey, Mike, about. What was, the, what, was the, what was the margin of victory in Arizona last year exactly? The, well, it's a state <laughs> that was carried by Joe Biden, you know, under these rules and laws. So, you know, there were enough. But it could have gone Democrats the other way just as easily. It was about. It was what 12,000 12, votes. Twelve thousand votes. Yeah. Biden right. carried Arizona by just over ten thousand votes, which was less than the number of votes that one of I think one of the parties in the case, the Arizona case, showed had been the number of ballots thrown out from people who were in the wrong precinct. And it's a more it's a more particular problem in Arizona as well. This idea of precincts because you're dealing with Indian reservations. Yeah, no, I, I, I get that. But the idea that, you know, finding a mailbox is too much of a hindrance for voters just, you know, doesn't ring true for most people. Mike, it's, in some vote, of these reservations, it's like a multi-hour drive to get to a mailbox. To get to a mailbox? How do, how yeah. do they send their mail? I, I mean, how do they receive they, they their have, mail? They, and they, say, they, yeah. they actually, that's actually true, Mike. They have like, you know, there's there's a all the mailboxes are at the post office or they're at a central place and they have to go to a central place to to collect them. Some of the, they don't have street numbers in some of the reservations. There is no door-to-door mail delivery in some of them. But right, these are all facts that were considered and, you know, and and uh, the, the you know, the Supreme Court uh, told us that in this case, in what, in, in the famous phrase, the totality of the circumstances, there was not uh, a section two violation under the Voting Rights Act. I would point to, you know, a very interesting graphic in today's New York Times where they took up a, a poll on the issues at stake in this opinion and one of them on the and what's striking is the results were 50-50 on whether ballot harvesting should be banned that you know you should cast your own ballot and not give it to a, a partisan campaign worker to cast it was 50-50 so the idea that this court is somehow out of step with the American public doesn't really hold up here. And Victoria, I just want to point you to something else that, uh, you know, I really wanted to bring up. And uh, that is the New York City mayor's race. Here we are, what, you know, two weeks into it, we have no idea who's the winner. It's been a complete fiasco. The New York Times reported on the other day, while campaign officials and some New Yorkers were engrossed in the emerging results, the count was nearly overshadowed by the vote-telling debacle that drew national attention and stoked concerns about whether voters would have faith in the city's electoral process. So I would modestly suggest that the Brennan Center for Law and Justice should make pay more attention to the oh. voting in its own backyard. Mike, than how do you know how do you know the Brennan like Center Arizona. isn't? Uh, how okay. do you know it isn't? Well do tell us uh, what what you're doing to restore electoral integrity in the city of New York. 
<laughs> well, Mike, that's I think that's a subject for a, a longer conversation. But I do think that it's it's unfair to say either about the Brennan Center or really about any other voting right activists that they've been ignoring what's been going on in the New York City Board of Elections or the overall way that the New York conducts its elections. It's been the, the project of a, of a generation of a number of people to kind of reform or alter the way the election system in New York is run. No one no one gives it a free pass. I guarantee you. Okay. All right. Uh, but all let's right, go. Look, let's go back to the Supreme Court. I was going to say before. Yeah, I was going to say you guys can take your voting rights argument <laughs> on the road. It'll be a great show. But Mike, at the outset, you you teased right. uh, a a big question so far unresolved. Exactly. Although, yes. I think it, Breyer, which is, which is Justice Breyer. Breyer. I thought that if he was going to resign, he would have done it by now. You guys know the the. There are precedents, I think, for justices waiting a little longer before they announce. Any any news on that front that either you, Jess, or Jackie could share with us? Presumably, if you if you know something, you're not going to break it on skullduggery. But what's your best <laughs> sense about what Justice Breyer's plans are, Jackie? No, I don't think anybody knows except him and and maybe a handful of others. But I think he he would definitely like to stay on by all accounts. And yet he, you know, he's a former Senate Judiciary Committee staffer for Ted Kennedy years ago, and he's he know, he understands politics as well as law, and he's saw what happened in the last four years, uh, five years with Merrick Garland, what the Republicans did to Merrick Garland, which opened the way to seating Neil Gorsuch, perhaps with Alito, the most conservative courts or justices in history, and then with um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg after holding off. Uh, Merrick Garland for for the better part of 10 months, rushing through Amy Coney Barrett's confirmation days before an election. So he's seen what could happen. Democrats could lose their majority tomorrow if, if uh, Pat Leahy became incapacitated or just one senator. And I think he doesn't want to be the person held to account for that. That said, I think it really pains him to think he's got he's going to look like he was forced off the court. Let me ask Jackie just a follow-up question, not necessarily about Breyer, but if, if Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett and Neil Gorsuch being appointed to the Supreme Court was the culmination of a generations-long effort by the conservatives in the United States to, to alter our judiciary, is there a democratic answer to it? Because, you know, is there a counterweight to it at all? No, Democrats tried that going back to Bush v. Gore when they were shocked by that 5-4 decision in December of 2000 that eff- effectively elected George W. Bush president. And they were you know, shocked saying, you know, we have to get our version of the Federalist Society something and get our voters as worked up about the balance on the courts as Republican voters are. And so they tried. They formed a group, American Constitutional the Constitution Society is very respectable, but is nowhere near the numbers and power and money of the Federalist Society or other Republican groups like um, the Judicial Crisis Center. And and Democratic voters just don't get as worked up overall. That may be changing. Uh, in this past election, uh, some polls showed that more Democrats were citing the Supreme Court as their very important reason for who they were choosing for president by several percentage points outside the margin of error, more than Republicans. So, um, but Democrats just, and plus Republicans are just more single-minded about the court. So I don't see Democrats being able to put together a similar force that 
emphasizes the courts and the politics of the courts the way Republicans do. Jess, does Breyer resign before the 2022 election? You know, I think I think that uh, I think that he probably will retire before then. I think there are a number of reasons why he would not want to do it this term. One is very personal. You know, he was appointed a year after Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and the Supreme Court's a very seniority-oriented institution. And so he was basically under her shadow at the court for all that time, that, that she would assign opinions if the liberals were in the majority uh, after Justice Stevens died, or rather retired. He, you know, he always, was, always had to speak after her. His vote always came after hers. Now, uh, he is the leader, the de facto leader of the liberal wing. He is the one who speaks for them when they are in the majority, rarely, uh, and also when they are in dissent. And so that is a power and influence he's never had before. So to walk away right now is would be perhaps personally frustrating. I mean, that, I mean he hasn't had you know, a, as many important cases to write uh, before as, as he might now. Secondly, he has made it very clear how opposed he is to tinkering with the Supreme Court itself because of the current conservative majority, a majority he often disagrees with. But he has said, he said at a speech at Harvard, he's saying it in a forthcoming book, that screwing around with the institution, say by adding more members that Joe Biden could appoint, is a, a cure worse than the disease. And he does not, he he's tries so hard. He's, he's very, in some ways, one might say, politically naive person for one who's been in Washington so long. But he likes to think of the Supreme Court as something that's different from politics. It's related, but it's different. And, and to leave in a way that would cast such a political glow around his departure, I think, is, is difficult for him to stomach. And then finally, one last point, who is the person everyone is talking about uh, as his likely replacement? His former law clerk, Atenji Brown-Jackson, who was just confirmed to the U.S. Circuit Court. Maybe he thinks it's a bit more decorous if she serves a, a year or a term on the Circuit Court. She's already been vetted a second time for confirmation for that court. Uh, before uh, leaving and, and likely uh, uh, bestowing uh, his seat. Uh, that's an excellent point, but uh, you know, if he doesn't, if if he doesn't do it now, which it doesn't look like he's doing, he can't do it until a year from now when the term ends. It's next year, and then you know, then the calendar does get a little potentially tricky. Although. You know, Mitch well, McConnell he can do whatever he wants. He can say at the beginning of the term, "I'm going. This is going to be my last term, and I yeah. intend to, you know, and I intend to retire at the end of this term." He can say that whenever he wants. There's no rule that he has to keep us all in suspense like Justice Kennedy did. Right. You know, okay. Waiting all right. Well, good point. The bottom line is, uh, Brevin has predicted that uh, Breyer will resign next year uh, or retire next year. So um, yeah. we will hold I him agree with to that. account. Yeah, I was. I was just remembering that it was on this exact day in 2005 that I was uh, on the tarmac in, I guess it was National Airport, getting ready to get on a plane to go to Long Island for our Isakoff's and my old colleague, Lally Weymouth's 4th of July party. Which you um, get invited to and I Which I, I don't, get invited but to, but he doesn't. make that clear. And yeah. my, my BlackBerry, like I was getting like emails or notifications on my, on my BlackBerry because Justice Sandra Day O'Connor had announced her resignation, and I did not get on that plane. I went back to the Newsweek Bureau in Washington, but I did manage to get on another plane the next day, I think, and go to the party. So <laughs> I am headed there 
right after this call to that same party. So we'll see if history repeats itself. Well, I think the next skullduggery should be live from the Lally Weymouth party at the Hamptons with, Camp, with Clyden giving us a full account. All right, um, Jackie and Jess, I want to thank you for joining us. And um, as we follow the court, we will uh, certainly be wanting to hear back from you. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Thanks, guys.